Hey, well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, Midtown. Good to see you guys. There's a lot more seats up here in the front. I don't spit. You guys can make your way to the front. That'd be great. Uh, good to see everyone this morning. Um, I haven't had a chance to meet many of you, but my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here, so would love to meet you afterwards. So come say hi. We'd like to uh, get to know you personally as well. Uh, you heard us say about ourselves at the front that we say that we're a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. And given that we're a family, I have a, a few bits of family news uh, to tell you guys about. Uh, we haven't had a chance to do so yet, but we wanted to recognize Wes and Sarah. You guys can stand. Married about a month ago. So we're our happiest young couples. And then we also have uh, Kristen and Cameron. You guys can stand. They just got engaged about a week ago. So. <laughs> and I was going to say, say hello to some first-time babies that were here, but I don't see them right now. So apologies if I uh, missed that. And we think we're having another one that's due today. So we continue to produce babies, which is fantastic. Um, we are in our second week of this. Uh, we're going to study the book of Acts really over the course of this entire kind of school year. But this fall, we're actually just doing uh, chapters 1 through 7, which that part of the book of Acts is really the story of the, the, first, uh, the birth of the church in Jerusalem. So it's the very first city where the church was born. And you see what God did in that very first city of, of Jerusalem in Acts 1 through 7. And so that's what we're going to actually be walking through this entire fall, which I'm real excited about. And if you were here last week, you heard uh, the very uh, first of the sermon series where we really emphasize Acts 1-8 which was when Jesus says to his, his followers that, that they would be filled with the Spirit and then they would go out and be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the, and the ends of the earth. And among other things, what Jake caught us last week is how similar that is to our vision as a church, where we say at Midtown, our vision is to partner with God to see the day when every man, woman, and child hears the gospel from someone who loves them, beginning in Austin, which is like our Jerusalem. So they were speaking, Jesus was speaking to the disciples in Jerusalem, basically saying, hey, you guys are going to start where you are, but then it's going to continue to move out. And so we're going to look over the, the course of this fall as to what, what God did in that first city of Jerusalem and think, too, all along the way about what would it look like for God to do something similar um, in our day, in our city, um, in our, our campus. In chapter 2, we're going to get to next week, in chapter 2 is when this promised Holy Spirit actually comes upon the disciples. And so today we're actually going to study this little, little passage that's between the promise and the promise coming true. And it's, it's uh, about a seven-day period. So Jesus died like on the Passover, and then he rose three days later. And then in the uh, holidays of the Jewish system, there was the Passover, and then 50 days later was Pentecost. And so if Jesus died on Passover, he rose three days later. And then we read in the last week in the very first part of Acts 1 that he was with the disciples, giving many convincing proofs that he had rose from the dead, that he did that over a period of 40 days. So that's 43 days. And now we've got seven days until Pentecost, which is the day that the, the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples. And so the question is, what happened during these seven days? What did they do when Jesus ascended? What was their next step? And so that's what we're going to look at it today. It's pretty simple. We're just going to ask the question, who was there? What did they do? And then what did God tell them to do? All right? Uh, let me open us in prayer. Father, we ask that you would uh, speak to us. We thank you that you're sovereign, and even as we talk about... Uh, your Holy Spirit, uh, through this passage, your, your Spirit's still at work in each of us. And so we invite you just to, to speak through any part of this as we dwell on your Word and think about it for this next 20 or 30 minutes. Uh, let it come alive to our heart in a way that, that really changes us. 
In Jesus' name, amen. So the first question uh, that we want to ask is just who is there? And so if you want to start in verse 12 at Acts 1, here you're going to see it described who was there. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill they called the Mount of Olives, about a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where, where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, dot, dot, dot. We'll get to that part, but I wanted you to see that there was also 120 people there. And so really, there's kind of four categories of people who are there. There's the 11 disciples. There's the women along with Mary. There's this 120 group that it would be, of course, comprised of the 11 and the women. And then there's Jesus' brothers. So I want to just look at each of those just briefly and, and think about what it might mean for us. Uh, the first is the 11 disciples. Uh, we're going to get more to this later as to why there was 11. You know, it was because Judas had betrayed Jesus, and then later he had hung himself, which we'll, we'll get to that actually in, in a little bit. So there's just 11 of them that are there. And I just want to draw out real quick the, the idea that to know that Jesus actually had 12 key leaders. We're going to see here in a minute that he had many of other followers. So it wasn't just these 12, but he did pick 12 to be his primary leaders, the ones he spent the most time with. And even among them, if you read the Gospels, you see Jesus getting a little bit more time with three of the 12. And so he has these leaders, but then he's got tons of other people that follow. Uh, we'll talk more about what they do to fill this 12th spot later in the passage. The second group of people I really love that it says here that there was these women and there was Mary. And one of the things you love when you read the gospel is you see Jesus interacting with women in so many ways that would have been controversial or even inappropriate in his day. I love like when you read John 4 and Jesus goes and talks to the Samaritan woman who had been married many times and the disciples are going off to get food and when they come back it says they were surprised to see him talking with a woman. Yet Jesus was revolutionary in the way that he included men and women in his ministry. Not that he just ministered to them, he actually had them come alongside and minister with him. One of the best passages for that is Luke chapter 8. In Luke 8, here's how it describes some of Jesus' followers. It says, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, but also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. And so Jesus didn't just have these 12 disciples. He had this, this group of women that he wouldn't, didn't just minister to, but they were ministering with him, and they were working women. They were actually supplying and funding the ministry by the work that they were doing. It's amazing the way that Jesus loved women and how women were right alongside following with the disciples, and they're there, again, in this upper room. The next group of people is 120. That would, of course, include the 11, would include these women, but we know that there were many others that were following as well. In fact, if you just went from that uh, Luke 8, when it talked about the women, two chapters later, you get to Luke 10, naturally, and Luke 10 says this, after, the, after, the Lord, he, uh, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. So he's got all these people, not just the 12, he's actually got 72 that he's sending out to do the work, two by two, going ahead and doing the ministry from town to town before Jesus would get there. So I say all that to say, I want you to see that there's a, there's a pack of people that are following him. It's not just this 12. It's comprised of, 
of women who are working and serving and men that are working and serving and all of them. And now we've got this occasion where there's 120 that are gathered together um, in this upper room. But maybe the one that I love the most is the last category. It says that Jesus' brothers were with him. And what's unique about that is you might not know it, but Jesus' brothers didn't believe in Jesus. You see that in the gospel. So something happened between Jesus' death and during this resurrection where his brothers finally came to believe. Look what it says of his brothers in Mark chapter 3. It says that Jesus entered a house, and again, the crowds gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. So here's the posture of Jesus' family, the posture of Jesus' brothers. This guy's out of his mind. What is he doing? Or in John chapter 7, here's how it describes his brothers. After this, Jesus went around Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. They're trying to get him to do stuff that he wasn't called to do. They didn't believe. So, so what happened? What took place? I believe it was that his brothers saw the resurrected Jesus. I'll show you a scripture as to why, but before I do, I wanted to show you, or go back to something that Jake said last week that I found so helpful. I had never really even noticed it before, but earlier in Acts 1, it says that the disciples that were there with him, he said of those 40 days, he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And I love that like a resurrected dude has to like give proof. <laughs> he has to prove it like again and again and try to convince people and try to convince people. Like Jake said, he, he lets Thomas touch his hands. He, he eats with them and he sees them many times, convincing them. And I love too that, that we can be a church that allows people to doubt, allows people to, to question and, and to, to seek together, even like what Matt said, when we seek together, we can find truth and we can see who Jesus is. And I want us to continue to do that and hope that we would. But I believe what happened was James saw Jesus and he believed. If you go to maybe the most uh, famous passage on the resurrection, it's 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's describing the resurrection. He's explaining exactly what the gospel is. And here's what he says. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you've received, on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you've been saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you would have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance. So here's the gospel. Here's the most important things. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the other brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. But then he appeared to James, which is Jesus' brother, and the apostles. And last of all, Paul would say he appeared to me as one abnormally born. James was a witness to the resurrection, and it caused his heart to believe. If you were to go on reading further in that passage, Paul would say, our whole faith hinges upon the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. If, if he didn't rise from the dead, our faith is futile. And so that's what we cling to, that Jesus rose from the dead. And, and James and his brothers, they, they believed. So they were among them. So what does that mean? We've got 120 people. <laughs> we've got 11 disciples. We've got Jesus' brothers. We've got these women and, and many others that were there. One of the things that I was thinking about this week, like, well, what does this mean, mean for us at Midtown? 
I find encouragement that it was just a small group, like 120 people. We're going to get there, but eventually we're going to get to Acts chapter 5. And in Acts chapter 5, the leaders in the, in the city of Jerusalem accused the disciples of saturating the city. They said, you filled all of Jerusalem with your teaching. So our vision to see every man, woman, and child, like it happened. It happened, and it started with 120 people. I love that we had our family gathering uh, last, uh, yesterday morning, our, or the taco meeting, as it was uh, described earlier, that there were tacos. There's still some in the back. Um, at the taco meeting, we, we looked back at the last year, and one of the things I loved is, is we said, hey, you know how many partners we have at Midtown? Partners is kind of our word for membership, so we have what we call regular attenders and partners. We have 118 partners, pretty similar to Jerusalem, right? It even said there was about 120. We have 118 partners. Yet among our church, we, we had uh, 163 people groups that we adopted. People groups is kind of a term that we use to help people actually identify their kind of Jerusalem. Like we say, when Jesus said, start in Jerusalem, we're actually saying to individuals, like, well, wh- what is your j- spiritual Jerusalem? Like, who are the people that God's placed you around? We actually had 163 people that we said, hey, these are the people that we want to love. These are the people that we want to demonstrate and declare the gospel to. And among them, 56 of those 163 heard the gospel from us last year. And, and so great that eight people put their faith in Christ. Eight people through our work, our meager 118 partners similar to this 120. Three of our kids put their faith in Christ due to the ministry in your homes and the ministry that takes place through Midtown Kids. Isn't that incredible? And I thought, started thinking to myself, like, it's okay if we're a smallish church of 118 partners or likely about 200 people sitting here today because God can do great things through a small group of people. Personally, I've been uh, not when I'm reading Acts or doing studying for this, I've been studying what's called like the post-exile books of the Bible. So when, when Judah and Israel were taken into captivity by Assyria and Babylon, then the Persians came and ruled the Babylons, and then under, Babylon, uh, under Persian rule, they were actually freed to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall. You can find that kind of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and then the um, prophets uh, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, those kind of last three prophets in the Old Testament. So I've been reading that personally just for my own, my own enrichment. One of the things that's been very helpful for me at this time of my life was they were actually commissioned to go rebuild this temple. And as they get it started, they start laying it down the foundation. You can find this in Ezra and Haggai and Zechariah that the people start complaining because some people remember what it used to be like. And so they start crying and weeping and saying, it's just not going to be the same. It's just not going to be the same. And God's word through the prophet Haggai in chapter 2 and through Zechariah in chapter 4, he speaks to the people and he says, do not despise, as Zechariah 4, do not despise the day of small beginnings. He tells them, don't be discouraged. My glory is going to dwell here and I'm going to use you to do this. And so I want us to have the same spirit to not be discouraged, to look at this vision, to say, yeah, we want to see a day where every man, woman, and child hears the gospel. And certainly we're going to partner with other churches to do that, but even this group of 118 partners or about 200 people, part of our church, we can do it. God can do it through us. Let's not despise small beginnings. The other thing I like when I think about the people that were here was that they're relatively unnamed. You've got the 11 disciples, you've got Mary, so you've got 12 people that are named by name. Jesus' brothers, we kind of know who they are. We can maybe assume some of the people in the Luke 8 passage, some of those women were there as well. But for the most part, it's just a bunch of unnamed people. And those are the people God delights to use. We can't go there now, but if we went back just a few, or go a few chapters forward in chapter 4 in Acts, the people that are changing the world, 
Peter and John in this case, they're described as unschooled, ordinary men. They're just regular dudes. So it doesn't matter if you're in architecture or, or in advertising, if you're a stay-at-home dad or a software engineer, if you're a flight attendant or a carpenter. Like, those are the people that God wants to use. Those are the people He can use and will use. Let's be encouraged by that, that we're among this number that God wants to use. Second question, what were they doing? Pretty simple. What they were doing was they were praying. If you go to Acts 1.14, lost my scripture verses here, it says real simply that they all joined together constantly in prayer. If you read the Luke passage, which is kind of describing the same story in Luke, it says, when he led them out to the, of the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They stayed continually at the temple praising God. So what were they doing? They were going between this upper room and in the temple. This, was been, this would have been during uh, leading up to the Feast of Weeks. And so people on the Feast of Weeks would be bringing their wheat as sacrifices and, and they'd be bringing their first fruits of their wheat sacrifices. And so activity was happening in the temple and they were just going back and forth between this upper room and going and worshiping at the temple. And this was seven days that was just spent constantly in prayer. I have a little bit of a trick question for you. When you think about the Great Commission, what is the one verb that you think about? The first word that you think about is likely go, right? That's, that may have been what came to mind. But it's not, at least in the way that it's described in Acts. What did, let's go back and see what Jesus actually said. I keep misplacing my verses. What he actually said to them was on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave this commandment, do not leave. So you could say, do not go. The Great Commission isn't go to start with. The Great Commission is wait for the gift that my Father, which you've heard me speak about. Wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is what I like to call the missional rhythm, that Jesus is setting up something that they, he modeled in his life, the disciples got it, and now he's reminding them again that if you want to go do this work, it starts by prayer. It's Really, it's wait and then go, or I like to say because it rhymes better, pray and obey. When I was doing a campus ministry at UT, we had a pretty cool network of, of dozens of campus ministries that were working together. And our goal, much like the goal that we say for our church, was to see the day when every single student at the University of Texas heard the gospel from someone who loves them. That was our goal. And we actually divided the whole campus up into unique little people groups, every college, every club, every residence, every culture. And our aim was to get the whole body of Christ working together to mobilize students, to love and serve, to be missionaries in every single pocket of campus. And what we described as, as the activity of how to go about that was really simple. We said, what we want you to do is we want you just to get together with other believers that are part of your, that's, that's make it the architecture school. Get in the architecture school, and we guys want you to practice this very simple rhythm. Gather together for one hour a week. Start by sharing what God did the previous week. Pray and ask God to move in the architecture school. And then simply ask one question. God, what would you have us do? What do we do next? And we, were just, we would say, we define them as like a win for the week. What would be like a win for the week? Like literally something simple like, I'm going to go have lunch with so-and-so. Or I'm going to help someone in their studies. Or let's together throw a party for the game. Gosh, that game stunk last night. <laughs> so we're going to throw a party for the game. Whatever it would be. And then we'd say, just rinse and repeat. Next week, you come back and say, hey, what, what are the things that we said we would do? What did God do through it? Now let's pray again and pray. And then let's ask a question at the end of it. What do you want us to do next, God? 
What if we all establish that simple missional rhythm in our lives? We transform our city. We transform our people groups. We just need to practice the simple rhythm of pray and obey. You see this actually played out in the book of Acts. So we're, we're going to have a ton of opportunities to talk about prayer if we keep going through this book, but let me just draw out a few. In Acts chapter 2, here's how it's described. Here's what the people are described. Every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts, which is where they prayed. They broke bread in their homes together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, and they enjoyed favor with all the people. And what was the result? The Lord added daily the number of those who were being saved. A few chapters later, Acts 4, 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and went out and spoke the word of God boldly. Missional rhythm. They prayed and obeyed. Acts chapter 5. The apostles performed signs and wonders among all the people. All the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. Again, that's the temple where they prayed. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. You see this missional rhythm? This is all they did. They prayed together, and then they went out and did what God said, and then they gathered back together and they prayed and went out and did what God said. I like to joke that one of the things you could like make a subtitle, if I was Luke and I wrote the book of Acts, I'd say like, Acts, things the disciples did after they finished praying, <laughs> or, or like Acts, how the disciples went from one prayer meeting to the next and worked miracles in between. I mean, you're going to see this cycle time and time and time again through this book. And so I ask us, like, will we make prayer a priority? Let me make a comment about group prayer real quick. One of the things that we do is we tend to think about prayer just as personal prayer. And it's important. We should all be developing our personal prayer lives and certainly should be spending God, time with God personally. But you're going to see as we continue through this book that the church prayed together. And sometimes we think, well, maybe I don't know how to pray. Well, that's the point. You learn how to pray by praying in groups. And so I want us as a church to pray together more, starting first in your homes. Like, spouses, pray together. You should be praying together. Parents, you should be praying with your kids Roommates, singles, praying with each other. Students, praying with each other. All this prayer that you're going to see throughout this book is corporate prayer. As a church, pray in your missional community, in your midtown communities. Pray in your huddles. We have prayer upstairs every, um, every morning on Sunday mornings at 945. We had five people there this morning. What if we had 30 people there next Sunday? That's the kind of prayer that God uses to fuel his work. And we need to pray together. We need to pray together on our first Tuesdays. And I hope this year actually to get our church more involved in the citywide prayer movement. One of the things I love is that the body of Christ in Austin has worked together for so many years. And from time to time throughout the year, the whole body of Christ comes together to pray. And it, it feels like one of these Acts 1 movements where you're all praying. I think I've got a photo. I went to one this week. We had a photo of uh, uh, dozens and dozens of churches gathered for one night of united prayer just this last week. And to see the whole body of Christ come together and worship in very different styles and pray in different ways, it's just beautiful. And that's what's going to change God's work in our city is when we pray. I want to make one little concession that's a little bit different. The prayer that they were having in this upper room is different in one way from the prayer that we would pray. While they were praying for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we don't have to pray that. Because as followers of Christ, we've been given the Holy Spirit to indwell in us. Upon salvation, upon a profession of faith, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, it says. So we're not actually praying for the Spirit to fill us, but we're praying, the New Testament term is to be filled or empowered by the Holy Spirit. 
Ephesians 5 describes it being filled with the Holy Spirit, or Galatian uses this term that says, keeping in step with the Spirit. And so we're praying, we're not praying for the indwelling, but we're praying for the empowering, the capacity to be filled and to keep in step with God's Spirit and His work in the world. We can't do this on our own. I was listening to a, a guy, Tom Nelson, who uh, I studied under a long time ago, and he uh, reminded me of this funny story where he had a seminary professor would have his, uh, you know, in the preaching class, at one time they would take a field trip, and he'd have the guy, people go out and have to practice a sermon to tombstones. <laughs> so they'd go out to like a graveyard, and he'd say, you've got to preach to the tombstones, and they literally had to do this. And he did it just to show them, like, you can do nothing to someone who's dead. And the same is true for us. We can do nothing to stir people's hearts that are spiritually dead. The only way that God's going to use our words, our witness in any way, is if He's doing the work in someone's heart. And the way that we get to partner with God and the way He works in people's hearts is by praying. So let's pray together as a family, following the example of this first church. Last thing that I'll say was this question, what did God tell them to do? So they prayed and they obeyed. Now we'll get to the fun part of the passage where they cast lots and stuff like that. All right, we're picking up in uh, verse 14 or verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and he said, brothers and sisters, the scripture has been fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. A big parenthetical note here. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field where he fell headlong and his body burst open and his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called the field in their language, Akeldama, that is the field of blood. Back to Peter. <laughs> Four. Peter said, it's written in the book of Psalms, may, he, may his place be deserted and let no one dwell in it. And again, may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men that have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was lived among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For no one, <clears throat> uh, for one of these must become a witness, to, uh, uh, must be a witness of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you've chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas has left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and it fell on Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. Let's make a few uh, comments real quick. One regarding Judas. It says that his, uh, he fell and his intestines spilled out. It says that he bought the, the land, which really, you can read in the other Gospels, he didn't buy the land. It was the Pharisees who took the money and they bought the land. But whoever's writing this is writing, Luke is saying kind of vicariously, in essence, he bought the land. The land was bought with the money that he was given. And we know that he hung himself and his body probably bloated and somehow it fell, and that's why his intestines spilled, and that's why uh, we have this parenthetical note. Next, as to why there were 12 disciples. <laughs> as to why there were 12, or why was, why was there a need? So Peter says, uh, um, it's necessary that we find a 12th. And so I did a little thinking about that and research, like, why did they feel like they had to fill a 12th? And no one knows for certain, but we get a good idea through the passage. Maybe they thought that that it was related to Jesus' promise. If you were to go back to Matthew 19, Jesus makes a promise that the 12 disciples would have 12 thrones where they would rule with him in the new kingdom. So maybe they thought, like, we need to find somebody for this. 
maybe just as good Jews, the 12 had a big uh, significant number. There were 12 tribes, and Jesus chose 12, so maybe we need to find a 12th. Or maybe it was just natural, like, we lost somebody, let's replace somebody. But at the very least, what we know is it was prophetic because God spoke to Peter while they were praying through these psalms that he was reading. You remember when we, when we did Psalms of Summer? One of the things that we said when we went through that series is it's great to have psalms, and you've got kind of playlists, and you know when I'm going through a hard time, this is the psalm I'm going to go to. I love that while they were praying and worshiping, someone, certainly Peter, if not all of them, they were reading psalms together. They found their psalm that they needed, and the psalms they were particularly looking at, the ones that were quoted, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, each were prophetic of Jesus' death. And so that's kind of one of the tricks in the way the psalms are written. The psalms are sometimes written where David's describing things that are happening to him, but later we'll look at it and say, oh, no, that happened to Jesus too. And so in Psalm 69, for instance, we get um, where it says that um, zeal for his house will consume him. And then when they turn over, when Jesus says, cleanses the temple, it says the disciples remember zeal for his house. So they reckoned that psalm to be true of Jesus. Also in that psalm is where he's given vinegar. Uh, David's describing being given vi- vinegar by his adversaries, which is then looked at later saying, hey, when Jesus was on the cross, that's what they did when they tried to give him a drink. And so these are, these are prophetic kind of messianic psalms that these 120 are reading together and thinking about. And as they do, Peter kind of catches on to two phrases. One, that his place shall be called deserted. In other words, like in these Psalms, what happens is David's describing what happens, and then David starts to pray for God's justice on his enemies. And one of the things he prayed was, let let this guy's inheritance be deserted. And so Peter's saying, hey, maybe that's true of Judas, so let's, let's replace him. And then in Psalm 109, it says, let another replace his leadership. Again, that psalm is describing the troubles that David was going through, and then he prays that someone else would take leadership so he wouldn't be persecuted. So Peter's reading these psalms, his psalms of summer, his psalm and his playlist, and he hears God say, hey, we need to appoint someone else. So that's at least the reason why, one of the reasons why he was appointed. Now to casting lots. Now, why would they have cast lots? Why would that have been the, the, the way that they would go about this? First of all, uh, I find a real comfort in knowing and believing that, that part of it was they just believed in the sovereignty of God to choose a leader. There's a proverb that maybe they were thinking of, Proverbs 16:33. It says, a lot is cast, but the Lord decides what's going to happen. So maybe they were thinking about that. But here's a few things that make it a little, a little less weird to us today. First, consider the process that they dialogued about at first. And they actually had, it said they nominated these two guys. So there was dialogue. There was nomination to start with. Second, um, there, were, there was qualifications. Like, we've got to find someone who's been with us the entire time and has witnessed the resurrection. And then they get down to two, and both are qualified. So that makes it even easier to take that they would do it by casting lots. But the other thing to consider, it wasn't a moral decision. They are just deciding. Take hope, though, that the rest of the, the book of Acts, you never see this again. So this is the last time that this was used as any sort of device. In fact, what becomes more common, because they didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit, once they had the indwelling Holy Spirit, they waited upon the Spirit to give them direction as to who to call. You read this in Acts 13. This was the way that it worked later in the, in, in the book of Acts. Now, in the church of Antioch, where there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius, the Cyrene, Manaean, who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I've called them. So that they have fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. 
So this is how it's done throughout the rest of the book, and this is how it's modeled throughout the rest of the New Testament and how we appoint leaders, which I'll talk about very briefly now. The thing that I got out of this when I started thinking about more was just the idea that God has leaders. The church needs leaders. They called out these 12, and while there's 120, there were 12 that have special role that God had called them out to. And this is the way that Jesus led. He had his 12 disciples along with all these other followers, and this is the way the church is going to lead. As we continue to read through the book of Acts, you're going to find as the church grows, there's actually leadership starts to get put in place because as things grow, more needs are happening. There's a conflict of leadership in Acts 6 and Acts 15. They're actually going to call a council, so they kind of appoint leaders to be part of a council to make some big decisions. And you're going to see people get called out in, in Paul's life and Paul's missionary journeys. He would make disciples, and then later he would come back and appoint elders, or he would send some of his disciples to go appoint elders. And so I say all that to say leadership is needed in the church, that it's God's design that he would call some to lead. And we, in a very similar way, that they had qualifications, we have qualifications too. I'll just read one of the passages from 1 Timothy 3 when it comes to elders. It says, here's a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer or desires a noble task, no overseer must be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own house, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He also must have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. This is the posture that we take as a church when we're appointing leaders. We look for qualified men, and we vet them, and we have conversations with them, and they apply for the process. And the elder board seeks God and prays and asks for the Holy Spirit to speak and to to help us decide who would be the next elder. Um, It happens to be, this didn't coincide with this passage, but we're actually in a nominating uh, phase. So if Barry, if you mind standing real quick. Barry's our next elder candidate, uh, was presented at our family meeting yesterday. Yep, give him a hand, Barry. <laughs> so, I want you to know on our process, sit down, Barry. Um, <laughs> uh, a number of us were at the family meeting, and this is the one thing that we, as if you're a partner at Midtown, this is one of the things that we actually vote on. And so he's gone through all this process already with the elders. It was formally uh, nominated yesterday at the family meeting, but you guys who are partners that, that weren't there, uh, we want to invite you to be part of this vote. And so Barry's got a bio and a uh, voting card, and next, next week during the offering, I believe, we're going to give everyone a chance to, to register uh, their vote if you're a partner. And so that's how we do it at Midtown. God has leaders, and we're thankful for the leaders that he has, uh, even here among our body. That's all I have for today, so we're going to move into a time of communion without much of a uh, very clear transition. <laughs> but we, we love to celebrate. Um, one, one of the things I love that we're going to do as we sing the songs that were chosen uh, for this is we're going to sing songs that cry out for God to empower us, songs that remind us that we need God because we do. We take this task of wanting to reach every man, woman, and child. We want to, we want to be a part of Jesus' work in the world. Man, it should humble us. It should cause us to say, God, we need you. So let's declare that in our worship uh, with our hearts here. And before we do, or while we do, uh, I want to invite you guys to take, take communion. 
And so you can come down the, the aisles either way, uh, two, two rows works best. And as you take it, I want you to remember what Christ has done for you and that His body, His, his body broken for you enables you to have the Holy Spirit, to have a personal relationship with Him. So reflect on that as you take communion. Uh, let me pray for us. Father, we thank You for the fact that You empower us. Do so even now. You said, Lord, as we pray, that you would, you would fill us. And so as we worship, which is really just singing prayers, we're going to sing them to you and, and ask that as we take communion, we remember that you died for us, that you did rise again, and you have filled us with your Spirit to be your witnesses. In Jesus' name, amen.